0: friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. And, and Enoch's life pleased God. And one day they were walking and, you know, everybody teases that they just had their normal walk and they were spending time together and the Lord was enjoying the of Enoch. And, and they got to the end of the day, it was starting to get dark. And, 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 the, and Enoch says to the Lord, you know, Lord, it's, it's time for me to get home. It's getting late. And the Lord says, hey, Enoch, well, I think we're closer to my house. Why don't you just come home with me? And of course, that's not Bible, but it's a it's, it's cool way just to see. And it says that Enoch was translated. We talk about the life of Mary, and we've used this example before to answer this question in your life. And it's so important. And, and, and again, I can, you know, beat a dead horse. Is that how the saying goes? Kick a dead horse. But it, I can kick this horse till kingdom come and be happy with it. Because um, the, to, to answer the question, the simple question, what does God want for your life? The other way, and, and again, two weeks ago when we were studying Enoch's life, I think we did a pretty good job of, of just saying that God wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to be intimate with you. He likes spending time with you. He wants to hear your voice. He wants you to know his voice. We looked at the life of Mary, and Mary was the first one in the Bible who Jesus appeared to post-resurrection. She was there at the tomb, and she went down in the tomb, and she saw the two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. She saw the bema seed of Christ and the blood of Jesus spr- sprinkled on the altar, and the two angels were there. And she's not the only person in human history that saw the most magnificent scene of angels and was not impressed in the least. A- and, they said, and they said to her, Mary, and she said, where's Jesus? No, 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 oh, wow. You know, and every other occasion when people see angels, they have a reaction. And Mary has no reaction. Her only reaction is, where is Jesus? She's looking into the face of glory, heavenly glory, with no reaction. There's only one reason why Mary could act the way and behave the way she did in the tomb that morning of Jesus' resurrection that first Easter morning is because she was so in love with Jesus that she only wanted Jesus. She just wanted to see Jesus. That's what God wants for your life. He wants you to have a heart that just loves him. And then listen, you don't have to. As Christians, we don't have to fret and, 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 and worry about, am I doing enough? Am I, am I working enough? Am I, you know, am, I, am I witnessing enough? Am I praying enough? Am I reading my Bible enough? All of those things are secondary and fringe to your relationship and your communication that you spend with God daily. And as you spend communication with God daily, God begins to put these things on your heart. And then none of it it feels like work because you're doing it because you want to. You're doing it because you love Jesus and you're responding to his great love and you're knowing and you're feeling the great love of God. And because you feel that great love, you naturally are going to want to do those things. You're you're naturally, you know, I, I tell you guys all the time when it comes to the area of giving, God doesn't need your money. And, and again, don't, don't seek those things, seek Jesus. But here's what I do know. I know that if I encourage you to spend time with Jesus, that God's going to begin to speak to your heart about the things that he wants. And one of those things is going to be giving. And so I'm backdooring you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm really not. Because honestly, you know, if we, if we preach a broke God, find a different church. Because God's not broke. Revelation and the end of the Bible and the end of the world and the things that are going to happen and the return of Christ... That's going to come to fruition with or without the things that we do. God has foretold those things from the end, from the beginning. Amen? All right, so that brings us to verse number 6 after we saw Enoch. And it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Look at your neighbor and say, no chance, kid. It's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seeking. Listen, Christianity is not an intellectual exercise. You know what? I think sometimes we we make it that, and and as Christians, we're 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 the most guilty of bickering with each other and fighting over what this verse and this thing and eschatology and is Jesus coming in a pre or a mid or post trib and is it all millennial, post millennial, who millennial? I don't know. It's all millennial. It's all going to work out in the end. And, and we fight about can you lose your salvation? Can my God make a rock so big He can't move it? Did Adam have a belly button? I mean, and, and we want to fight about about these things and 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 we bicker and, and listen. Christianity shouldn't be an intellectual exercise. The Bible does say, study to show thyself approved. A worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God has called us to be students of the word of God. And if you want to grow in Jesus, you need to know your Bibles. But it's not so that you can be smarter than the person next to you. Listen, I'm not your pastor because I'm the smartest guy in the room. Nor do I intend or nor do I have any desire just to be the smartest guy and know the most of the most Bible. That's never my intention. My ministry would be way more effective if I just spent the most time with Jesus. And I'm not saying I do, but but that's where ministry and life is born out of in Christianity is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And again, you know, Mary's Mary's devotion to Jesus didn't begin by God choosing her to be the first person that he was going to reveal himself to post-resurrection, a woman who he cast seven demons out of. What do you see in Mary's life for the three years before that? Every time you see her, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. When when the disciples couldn't understand for three years, Jesus telling them over and over again, I'm going to die and raise again the third day. It got to the point where Peter got so tired of hearing Jesus say he was going to die, he he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, because you don't understand the things of God. And, and, And yet the Bible says that Mary intellectually understood what the disciples missed. And yet, how did she get it? Because she was secretly going to Harvard and Yale Bible School and learning these intellectual things that the other disciples missed? No, she, she learned those things sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, and so again, you know, and the Bible says this, it is impossible to please God apart from faith. So when we run into people in our lives, we run into people um, in our daily walks And and there's this prevailing attitude out there that says, if I can intellectually prove or understand God, I will believe. I pity that fool. Just like, uh, what's his name? Mr. T. Because God's not going to honor that. God's not going to honor that because it's impossible to please God without faith. But here's what happens. When you believe in God, because God will give you the faith, and when you put your faith in God, guess what happens? You start to then intellectually get all of those intellectual questions answered. We already read in in verse number one of Hebrews that that faith is, is not blind. Faith is the substance. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so it's substantive. It's evidence. But God doesn't just provide evidence so that you'll believe. First, he calls you to believe and put your faith in him. And once you put your faith in him and you receive the Holy Spirit into your heart and life, then the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the word of God is spiritually discerned. And it's the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you that helps you understand it. When you become born again, as the Word of God says. You know the, the pirate's tale, dead men tell no tales. Well, dead men don't read too well. And then you hear people say, oh, I read the Bible and I didn't understand it. Well, it's because you're dead spiritually. If your spirit was alive and you put your faith in Christ first and the Holy Spirit was living inside of you, and then you go and read the Bible, now the Holy Spirit is helping you understand what you read. And it's the way that God designed it. And then it says... Um, in verse 6, it says, there's a really important word in verse 6, okay? It, it, it's, it's a red flag word. And it says, and that he must. Look at your neighbor and say, you must. Okay. When the Bible says must, you know, I was actually shocked to find out that 106 times this same he, uh, Greek word is, is used in the New Testament. A hundred and six times. It's translated um, in, in several other ways, ought, should, different things. But um, in John chapter 3 in verse 7 is, I think, one of the most important musts. Must needs is another way it's, it's, it's um, translated. But in John chapter 3, verse 7, it's Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when Jesus says you must, you must. Or is hot where you're headed. It's just the bottom line. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And you will go to hell without, without repentance and without being born again. And, and so here when I see that same word must, my antennas go up. And now here, and it's again in this context, the salvation issue. It says, first of all, you have to have faith and put your faith in Jesus. And then it says, and, God, um, and that God must, excuse me, for he who comes to God must And what must we do in this context? Believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Do you you believe that God has a reward for you? Do you believe that the work that you do here for the kingdom of God is based on the reward that you're going to receive in heaven? Did I word that bad? Do you believe that you're, you're preparing this reward, that what you do here on heaven, in, in, on earth, affects your reward in heaven? 100%. You better. You must. Here it says you must. Jesus said what? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So, so if Jesus tells you to store up for yourself treasures in heaven, when you get to heaven, do you realize there's a level of reward in heaven? It's very clear. It's very biblical. It's talked about. And, and listen, here's the idea. The Bible is very unashamed that, that God is motivating you and I with a reward. And, and it says that there's there's a judgment in, in Christ that everyone is going to face. Two judgments in the New Testament. One is found in Revelation. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. No believers, don't worry. You won't be in this judgment if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has won in sins and when god sees you there's nothing to judge he sees his son you're going to heaven you're born again you will not be at the great white throne judgment of revelation chapter 20 the second judgment is called the bema seat of christ where our works are tried by fire and it says everything that you've done will go through this fire and what is wood hay and stubble what happens when you put wood hay and stubble in a fire it burns up what happens when you put gold and silver and gems in fire They get refined. They get better. They become pure. And so there's going to be a day, a reconciling. And the Bible is just clear. You know what? I think I said, um, that number I just gave you, how many times the word must is there? That might have been, I might have got my references crossed. Oh, no, that's right. 29 times in the New Testament, it talks about the, the concept of a reward for the works that you do here on the earth. 29 times in the New Testament. Just in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, Jesus himself mentions the idea of reward nine times. The very last chapter of the Bible closes with this same reminder and same inspiration for your life and my life that there's a reward for you in heaven based on what you do here on this earth and based on your works. Jesus said this in the very last chapter of the Bible. The very last things he wants to communicate to us. And Jesus said, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So heaven is a destination. It's a motivation. That reward is a destination. It's a motivation as well. You know, I've heard people that are, you know, this false humility in Christ. Those are the worst, right, Christians? They're like, Oh, I'm just so humble. No, I just, oh, you look nice today. Oh, this is all Jesus. Just. Shut up. No, I'm kidding. The, listen, sometimes they say, oh, I, I don't do it for reward. If there was no reward, i just serve Jesus just because I'm just humble and I just love Jesus. I, just, I would do it for no reward. No, listen, it's, you don't have to feel that way. And, and they say that because they think that there's some, like, ill-gotten gain that if I'm, I'm doing something because I believe there's going to be a reward for it in heaven. The Bible encourages you many, many times to do it on earth because there is a reward in heaven. So we don't need to hide behind that. We don't need to be ashamed of the idea that the things that I'm doing for God, I believe that I'm going to be rewarded for them. 29 times. The Bible is definitely not ashamed. Jesus talks about the topic of reward more than any other New Testament voices. Paul talks about the the idea of reward many times. Amen? So what's your reward going to look like? You know, I imagine, and I, I tell this story so many times you've heard it, but um, when, when I was a kid, I used to watch this game show, it was called Whammies, No Whammies, No Whammies, Big Bucks, Big Bucks, so I imagine like getting to this beam of Seat of Christ, and maybe it's like this conveyor belt, and there's a big fire in the middle, and I put all my works on one side, and then I go around to the other side, and I watch what comes through, and as my works are going through the fire, I shout, No Whammies, No Whammies, Big Bucks, and I, and I hope that something good comes out. Now, that, 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 that's, that's kind of the concept of, of the beam of seed of Christ. Your works go in, wood, hay, and stubble's burned up, but I'm sure it's not going to be a conveyor belt, and I'm sure we're not going to be saying no whammies. But again, God says, and listen, highlight verse 6. You must believe that he is, and not only that you must believe, and I think it's very important in this idea and this concept that you are working for a reward and that's okay, is that here it says in Hebrews, this should encourage us, that I must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And listen, whenever I see that word, seek Him, there's always a qualifier. Every promise of God's word in this front, it always, and I, I mean, I haven't found one yet. But where it says, seek Him, what does it say right before that? Diligent. Diligently. Do you, do you know what it says in many places? It says, when you seek the Lord with your whole heart, you will find Him. Um, just write this down. I don't got time to jump around all over the place. But Jeremiah 29, 13. And when you seek me and find me, when you search for me with all your heart. In Psalms 119, verse 10, the same exact idea. I don't have that one marked. But we're going to do it now. My marker came out, sorry. Psalm one nineteen, ten says... With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we want to seek the Lord and seek him diligently. We're almost done and we got one verse. Good stuff. And then in verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to the faith. You know, we talk about... Um, Noah in the in the context all the time that Noah, this is, these are the facts of Noah's life. Noah was called to build a boat. It took him 120 years to build a boat. Anybody ever see, I think it was Russell Crowe. No, what's that guy's name? Who's the actor that played in the movie? Okay, Russell Crowe played in that movie, the Hollywood movie called Noah. And in the whole scene, the Noah character is like fighting with the people trying to keep him off the boat and kill him and all this stuff and it's his boat like completely blasphemous. The the Bible is exactly the opposite of what actually happened. Noah spent 120 years inviting everybody that he could to get on the boat and warning them of the pending and the coming judgment. And, And not one person in 120 years, Noah is called in the Bible a preacher of righteousness. It's my favorite title for Lydia's dad. Love him with all my heart, and he is a preacher of righteousness. And when he preaches, man, it's just, that's just such a good title for his preaching. He is a preacher of righteousness. And Noah is this guy, and and again, Pastor Drell has this spirit, and and Noah is a preacher of righteousness, and he's telling it straight, and he's giving him the truth. And and for 120 years, not one convert. And sometimes we put Noah's ministry in, in the context of failure, like not one person. We look at the life of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who was a prophet that for 40 years ministered and and, and nobody believed. But this verse right here completely changed my perspective on Noah. I I wouldn't look at that 120 years as a failure for anything after reading this verse, because this verse tells me that Noah completed and fulfilled and that was very fruitful in his calling and his ministry and did exactly what God told him to do. Obviously, he built the boat, and you and I can be very thankful that he accomplished that you know, task. Have you has anybody been to Kentucky and seen the replication of Noah's Ark? Phenomenal, right? And the size of it. And it wasn't like Noah just went down to Home Depot and said, Hey, you guys got any gopher wood? Can you uh sit on back order and I mean, you know, hundred and twenty years and he's got, you know, a few people there that Methuselah and, you know, Enoch would have been around for, for a season and there there yeah, maybe some people helped him and um but yet 120 years. But look at what God's call on Noah's life was in verse 7. Noah being divinely warmed of things not yet seen. He moved with godly fear and he prepared an ark. And then what's the word after ark? For So what was the purpose of him building this ark? For the saving of who? Who did he save? His ministry was absolutely successful. Because God called him to build this boat to save his household, and that's exactly what he did. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, eight people, got on this ark and were saved from from the worldwide deluge. And you and I, somehow, we we could track our our lineage back to one of those Shamhammer, Japheth, back through Noah and his wife and his three sons, and then eventually to Adam and Eve, as we've all come from Adam and Eve, and then through those eight people, after the the flood came you know and the you know we, we we live in a world that is consumed with 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 race, and you know ultimately there's one race, a human race, and we we all come from i don't care what color you are or what you look like we all come from Noah and his wife and one of his three sons all right let's do a couple more um, uh, along these lines, let me say this: Wh- Whose responsibility is it for you to raise um, godly children? It's parents' responsibility, right? We understand that. It- it's not, nor, nor biblically, is it is it the church's responsibility to raise godly kids. And I'm not taking any responsibility away from the church, the house of God. We are responsible to teach. Uh, and effectively support and, and, and to minister and to love the children. Jesus loved the kids. He said, forbid not the kids to come for me. And Jesus has a huge heart. And he said, and su- such a huge heart for the children, Jesus warned that if any, any of you cause one of these little ones whom I love to sin, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest ocean than to let one of my little ones one sin or to be a person who leads little people into sin. But ultimately, the responsibility of raising godly kids, is, it starts with the parents. And, and it's great. As parents, to have a good church that, that's pouring into my kids and helping me. And But, you know, we have your kids about, if you come on Wednesday nights and Sundays, we have your kids for about three hours a week. And, and it's just not enough time. You have them the rest of the week. And 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 it is um, godly kids. You know, speaking of that millstone around their neck, I got a call this week. Maybe some of you guys know this stuff. And I, I have a little note here. I was like, I'm not even going to do it. It's a soapbox. I'm going to rant for a minute. It's not even fitting in my message. But here we go. In, in Magna here in Utah, about a stone's throw away from us, there was a, a young man recently who was sent home from school because he had a John 316 shirt on. The dad got a call, a Spanish family, and um, this, this Spanish dad works with this person who called me and was told that he couldn't wear the John 316 school to school anymore because it it was offensive to to the kids in their classroom this is here in Utah Magna in Magna the um, the school right now the same school um, with taxpayer dollars is building a separate bathroom for all the furries or is that what they call furries for all the furries the principal um, has come to school on multiple occasions himself dressed as a furry in support of the furry communication that's in his church and all in his school and all that is okay, but you can't wear a shirt that says John 3.16 to school because it's offensive. It's a world we're living in. We have lost our ever-living minds. Then I saw a Fox News story around the same time. That's why they both hit me. And again, you guys might have followed this story. But in Colorado, in a school district, um, we used to do these back home too at JS. But we take the kids on a, on a field trip to Washington, D.C., and, and the Capitol, and, and Philadelphia, and Liberty Bell. And, um, and so they were on a Washington, D.C. school trip. And an 11-year-old girl was assigned to share a bed with a boy who was trans. And it was according to the the school policy that they backed this. The mom of the daughter happened to be one of the chaperones that was on the trip, and and it made it on Fox News. Um, It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest ocean and you caused one of my little ones to fall. All right, that had nothing to do with my sermon. Let's move on. (laughs) Sorry, I had to rant. Listen, I don't... we got to pray, you know, we got to pray, and and, and just be careful with, you know, in in California, obviously, where I came from, my kids were in private Christian school, and it was a lot different, we came here, and, you know, it was a lot, it wasn't as bad here in Utah as things we were dealing with in California, and um, there was really not an option at the time, a Christian or private school, there was none here, the closest one was like an hour and a half away, Um, but just be praying about, you know, watching and and making sure you're involved in your school's um, decisions and boards and parent meetings and anything we can do and you know maybe come a day soon enough where Utah gets bad enough and it sounds like it is in some degree some degrees already where we have to you know you're gonna have to homeschool or we're gonna have to do a church school or something where we we do something at church where we 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 school our own kids to um, you know keep them from this stuff all right. Hey, I am just going to keep going for a few minutes. I started way late, but I, I want to cover a little bit more of this before we go. Our next week's going to jam into it, so um, bear with me for just a few minutes. Hey, in verse 7, it says that Noah, one of the, one of the things that Noah did, now we he's always praising him, but it says here that, that Noah was moved with a godly fear. Um, and I I preach this from time to time, so you guys know this, but I I want you to understand that the Bible talks about us having a healthy fear of God. And again, the reason why I I, I preach it, I think it's important to communicate it, is because the world takes this idea that that God is this tyrant, and this whole idea you have to be afraid of this evil God, and if you don't do what he says, then he turns you into a crispy critter and sends you to hell. And um, and That's not the fear the Bible is talking about. That's not the, the fear that God requires from you and I. But at the same time, if, if you've got two cents, to, you know, if you've got two brain cells to rub together, it's not a bad idea to fear the God who controls your soul. It's not a bad idea to have some respect and some reverence for the God who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew, and he said, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Do not fear man who can kill your body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather, it makes more sense. It's wiser if you fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And again, I'm not afraid of God in the sense that, you know, he's going to turn me into a crispy critter if I make a mistake. I am more liken it to, you know, like when I was a kid, I had to be home when the street lights came on. And, you know, I'm down the street and, and you know, I'm eight years old. And, we're, and this is a true story. We're playing a tackle football game and the street lights come on. An hour later, we're still out there. I'm all muddy into my eyes. i got bruises everywhere. We're having a good old time. I know I'm an hour late for dinner and I'm walking now the, the four houses from where the football game was to my house. And I'm getting closer and closer to my house. And I'm an hour and a half late. And my stomach starts to go. <laughs> I know what's going to happen when I get home, right? There, there's a healthy fear that, that I'm in trouble when I get there. It doesn't make me run the other way. And I'm not going to get shot when I come through the door. And it's not a fear of, of death. But there's a healthy fear of respect that I'm, I'm, I, when I walk through those doors, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be in trouble. And so Noah, again, he has this, this healthy fear. And then in verse number 8. That's where we happen to open a new can of worms, and I just don't think we um, Let's do this. Let, let's read ahead. There, there is so much in the Bible about the life of Abraham, okay? So, so do a little homework this week, and then next week we're going to tackle Abraham, and I want you guys to go to Genesis, and by the way, from, from Adam to Abraham is half of the Old Testament. That's 2,000 years of human history from Abraham to Jesus is 2000 years of human history. From Jesus to today is 2000 years, which roughly gives us about 6000 years of human history. But you run into Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You're only 12 chapters into the Bible and you think but you're already in the middle part of the Old Testament. So everything from from the first 11 chapters of Genesis took 2000 years and then from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi takes another 2,000 years. Okay, so the, the majority of your New Testament goes from Abraham to um, Jesus. Now, again, so read, read the story in the life of Abraham through Genesis, three, four, six chapters in Genesis. You can find them in Romans chapter four, um, all over the place. So, Keen, you guys want to come on up? Um, and then next week, we are going to, like we did with Enoch, we are going to really tackle the life of Abraham. He's the father of faith and and just an amazing example for each of us in the faith. But if I start it, it won't be another two or three minutes. We'll be here all night. We could just do it. I'm actually feeling good. The Holy Spirit is like, I didn't even know my neck was hurt right now. It's what I needed to get healed. I thought I was going to be shutting down, but I'm ready to go. If it wasn't 100 degrees in here, I'd probably keep going. All right, let's stand together. Hey, the most important thing in life, your, your number one need, the number one need that man has, people say it's oxygen, even before oxygen, the number one need that you have is redemption. It's forgiveness of your sins and to know that you know that you're going to heaven one day. And Jesus said, there's going to come a day on judgment day. And people are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We did good works in your name. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And this is a religious group of people who did good things in religious names and for religious reasons. And they did good works and they, they went around on Saturdays and knocked on doors and passed out tracks and told people things about, about God. But at the same time, they didn't know Jesus and Jesus didn't know them. And they're not going to get into heaven, unfortunately, as Jesus said. Because the entrance into heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you know God and he knows you. And we're studying in Hebrews right now that, that your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. We're going to see some contradictions when we get into the next chapter of this next section of Hebrews where God has all these glowing, amazing things to say about Sarah and Abraham. And then you go back to Genesis and you read the actual account and you're like, Did God, like is there a contradiction here? Did God miss the, 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 the Sarah laughed at him when he said she was going to have a baby and that Abraham failed in the area of faith like five times in his walk. And God has this glowing report of Sarah and Abraham. And God didn't forget. Well, actually, he did forget. He chose that their sins and lawless deeds he will remember no more. And God speaks that over your life. That if you'll ask God to forgive you of your sins and you'll receive Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, that you'll go to heaven. And what, God is, and what God wants for your life. He doesn't want anything or need anything from you other than your love. That's what he does want. He wants intimacy with you. He wants you as a child to spend time with him. He wants true love. God could have created a bunch of robots. I love God. God loves me. I don't sin. It's not what he did. He gave us love and he gave us a choice. But if you choose God, he'll honor you. If you choose God... He'll reward you, and if you choose not to have God, then God doesn't send you to hell. He just honors your request that you don't want Him in your life, and so He's not going to force you against your will for all of eternity. He's chosen to give you a free will, and just by honoring your request to not have You in, your, in His life, an absence of all things that God is. In hell, there's there's no love. God is love. It's just the absence of God. It's not God's punishment. In hell, there's no joy. God is joy. In hell, there's no peace. God is peace. And God's invited every one of you in. This side of heaven is the all inclusive club. The whosoever's, the Bible says, that whosoever should believe in the name of Jesus, if you ask Jesus in your heart, that he'll save you. So I want to give you that opportunity today. If you need to get your heart and your life right with Jesus, I'm going I'm to lead us in a prayer. And then when I'm done, there'll be some, some pastors and leaders up front to pray with you. If you'd like individual prayer, you can come up and pray. We'll give you a Bible and encourage you. And you know what? There's, there's no magic in words. There's no special way that I need to say this prayer. Like if I mess it up, I say the words wrong, you're not going to get saved. It doesn't work that way. If you're saying yes right now to Jesus in your heart, I believe this. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart. And, and you're saying, I want to get saved. I want to I surrender my whole life to Jesus. And God's going to change your life right now. And today, your eternity is going to change from darkness unto light. And so let's, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. I give you my life.